Well, guess how long it takes to get from there to there to there and get a microphone? About 60 seconds, thank the Lord. <sighs> I never even had the thought that I was forgetting something this morning. Usually I'm plagued by that thought, and then I discover what it was. But I'm excited to be starting a new series. And if you were here last week, you know that Professor Mike Tapper from Southern Wesleyan spoke about magnifying the Lord and how we make big things bigger when we seek to magnify the Lord. He doesn't need our magnification to make him bigger, but the world around us needs to see how big and how awesome and how wonderful he really is. So when I was looking for a little transitional element from worship into the sermon, and I saw that one, I was like, well, that's perfect because it builds on where we were last week. And if you missed that message, you should really try to catch it. But it also transitions us into this idea of kingdom living, that this new series that we're starting today titled Kingdom Living is about magnifying the Lord with our lives. And how do we do that in a culture that is drifting farther and farther away? It also is sort of, this series is sort of bridging from our fall series of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality into our Advent series uh, that we'll be starting in several weeks. And uh, we'll be looking at a kingdom Christmas. It gets us back on our annual theme this year, 2023, really focusing on the kingdom of God. And how do we live in these next few weeks? How will we live as ambassadors for the kingdom in some really pivotal areas, areas where, where the people of God need to stand out from the culture around us, perhaps. And so if you got your digital bulletin and read through it carefully, or you received an email from Pastor Sandy as one of our Kidsway families, you know that our topic today is kingdom sexuality, kingdom sexuality. And I've had people from our LBA and from our prayer team and my banding together groups praying for this series and for these messages uh, for some time. But I also wanted to give our families a heads up of our subject matter so that they could make an informed decision with that. Now, raise your hand if you would agree with the statement, we're in perhaps the most sexually confused time as a culture that our nation has ever seen. Most of the hands are going up. In fact, it might even be the most sexually confused time that the world has ever seen. And so my goal in a message titled Kingdom Sexuality is to add clarity and compassion to the confusion that is all around us in our culture. And so part of the question here is, is how did we get here? And then how can we bring clarity and compassion to what the Word of God has to say about this subject? That's really what kingdom living is all about. And at the outset, I want to say a couple things. One, maybe you're struggling or you know someone who is struggling in this area. And I would add that it's really only an easy topic to address if you're not struggling with it or you don't know somebody who is. And I, for one, know many people who struggle with this area of what does God's Word say about sexuality and how do we reconcile that maybe with desires or with uh, attractions or other things. And I'll give a couple disclaimers. One is I'm sure I might say something wrong or hurtful, especially for someone who is struggling, and that's not my intent at all. But I also might not say something that you would like to have said. And, and it's not that I'm saying this is the most comprehensive treatment of the subject ever, and anything that's not said was intentionally not said. 
there are time constraints, and so I'm going to do my best to make a faithful presentation of what kingdom sexuality really looks like. I have a couple of goals. One is that even if you disagree with something that's said, or you struggle in this area, that you would feel loved, and you would feel valued, and you would feel welcome here. And that is a goal for our whole church, that people who maybe feel or or understand things differently would have a space to work that out instead of being sent away to work that out. Another goal is I want to teach God's truth on this subject. And I, I think there have been too many shallow answers to some really tough questions. And I really firmly believe that God's word gives you your best life. That reading it, studying it, understanding it, applying it to your everyday life is the best life that is available to us. And that's why understanding his kingdom, understanding his kingdom rule, and understanding his kingdom reign and how we live within that really matters. So I don't think I've ever said this before, but hold your applause or your amens because an ill-timed amen on a subject like this could be really hurtful to somebody who maybe struggles with that. Um, and, And we don't want to create that type of an atmosphere. There'll be some truth, and you might think, yes, but hold the applause, hold the amens, and and don't weaponize. Too often, I think, the church has sort of weaponized some truth to the exclusion of other truths and used that uh, in a way that becomes very hurtful, in a way that Jesus would not. So our subject today is kingdom sexuality, and our, to- our, our text for today is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have one of our blue hardcover pew Bibles, um, it's going to be page 1,777. Now, I had to laugh because in my notes, before I looked up the page number, I had made the statement that Corinth, first century Corinth, was the Las Vegas of the first century AD. And then I look up the page number to add that to my notes, and it's got 777, just like the slot machines that you want to see in Las Vegas. And I thought, okay, well, that's very clever, interesting. But when I say that Corinth was the Las Vegas of the first century AD, it was a culture that literally worshipped sex. So what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, but they were really focused on sexual expression in first century AD of Corinth. They had a temple to their patron goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex. And so pretty much everything that happened in Corinth had some sexual connotation to it in regards to worship of their patron god, or goddess, I should say. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This will be our launch pad passage. We'll look at a couple of other passages as well. You're welcome to try to flip around in there or to just read them on the screen. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, writing a letter to a church and to believers that are surrounded by a sexually immoral culture, says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, he's making an important distinction here. The first thing that he says is flee from sexual immorality. Basically, he's saying whatever you see going on around you, whatever you see happening in Corinth, 
Turn 180 degrees and run the other direction, okay? That's what fleeing is. That's like when Joseph was in Potiphar's household and Potiphar's wife took a liking to him. Joseph didn't see how close he could get to the line before crossing over. He left. He ran away. He fleed from sexual immorality. And Paul is saying the same thing to us. Don't see how close you can get to the line. Am I sinning yet? Am I sinning yet? Am I sinning yet? Am I sinning yet? Before you topple over into the abyss, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And he makes an important point that sexual sin is different than any other sin. That's why we have to talk about kingdom sexuality, because sexual sin is different. It's not more grave or more sinful. It's not worse than other sins, but it is different than other sins. And he tells us why. Because it gets inside you in a way that other sins that are more external do not. And to illustrate this point, many people, perhaps most people, would say that the thing that haunts them the most is either something they did sexually or something that was done to them sexually. Sexual sin is different than other sins. We're not ranking it and saying it's the worst of all sins and it's more punishable than other sins. Not at all. But it is different because when we sin in other ways, we sin outside ourselves. When we sin sexually, there's language in scriptures talking about the two becoming one. And, and there's intertwining and intermingling that takes place because of that. And Satan's goal is to make sexual sin look normal and God's design look strange. He did a bang-up job in first century Corinth and he's doing a bang-up job in our culture today. To make God's design look strange and to make things that Scripture would call sexually sinful normal. Now, the pastor that I quote there, Ashley Woodridge, is one you may or may not be familiar with. He pastors a large church in the Phoenix area called Christ Church of the Valley. And a good friend of mine attends that church and shared a message with me. I had something totally different planned for these three weeks between emotionally healthy spirituality and, and kingdom Christmas. And when I watched this message, I said, we have to talk about this. We, we, we can't talk about the kingdom of God for a year and never talk about kingdom sexuality in a culture that is so confused sexually. So I'm leaning heavily on a message that I watched, that I internalized, that I dug deeper and personalized, but I want to give credit where credit is due. And I think that this is one of the main statements that we need to understand, that Satan, and by the way, that's not a typo, I will never capitalize Satan's name. I just don't think he's worthy of the, of the acknowledgement. Okay, so it's not a typo. I never capitalize Satan. I don't in my handwriting. I don't in anything else. So I didn't want you to think Pastor Mark made a typo. Andy forgot his mic. But wouldn't you say this is where we're at today? That Satan has made sexual sin look normal and has made God's design look increasingly strange. And we hear things today that you never would have heard of a generation ago. And they're, they're fairly common in our cultural language. Things like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or I'm not quite sure which one I am today. Or go away from the personal individual to, we're going to open our marriage up. We're just going to experiment with a lot of different science, ways of sexually expressing. You hear people say this today, and it's led to such a deep confusion that you'll hear people say, well, I think I'm actually a dog trapped in a human's body or something else. And we think that this is so 
unusual, but it's becoming more and more common. And so the big question that I want to try to get to the bottom of today is, how did we get to this point? How did we get to this point with such confusion? How did we get to this point where Satan's achieved his goal in large degree to make sexual sin look normal and God's designed to look strange? Well, I think a lot of people would say, well, we threw the Bible out. We stopped praying in schools. We, we you know, as a, as a culture, we pushed God to the side. And I think that's true, but I think it's incomplete. Kind of like if I were to say that the Twin Towers fell on 9-11 because of gravity. Well, it's true, but it's incomplete because there was an ideology, there was a methodology, there was a way of thinking that caused a group of people to hijack planes and fly them into those towers, and then gravity kicked in. And there was a, an ideology and a way of thinking that caused us to come to the place that we are, that caused a lot of people to push Scripture to the side. So I want to try to dive into that and do a little bit of justice to answering that question because the real genesis, most sociologists looking at this topic today would, would point to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And the sexual revolution of the 1960s sought to remove the limits and to break down some of those gender roles and to re remove any hindrances on sex whatsoever. Just do whatever feels good, whatever you want to, whenever you want to. And I just don't think that we can discover how to move forward without understanding how we got here and then be a people that have our eyes wide open and can understand some of the language that comes from the opposition to God's way, to a kingdom, sexuality. And there were two core ideologies of the sexual revolution. I want to look at those and try to understand those a little bit because people that have bought into this, they're probably standing on a foundation that's laid by these two core ideologies. The first one is that idea of expressive individualism. Now, we believe that this term was originally coined by a psychologist, sociologist named Robert Bella, and the idea behind expressive individualism is that my identity is found only when I can outwardly express my inward feelings. That's the idea behind expressive individualism, that I'm an individual and that I'm not even being authentic to myself unless I can express my inward feelings. I have to search within myself. I have to see what I can find there, and then I have to express it in order to be authentic. And so some of the slogans of expressive individualism, which you'll see increasingly in national ad campaigns for secular companies and so forth, are things like, you do you. Follow your truth. Find yourself. And perhaps the one that got it all started or the one that is the biggest challenge is just follow your heart. How many of you have heard that one recently? Just follow your heart. You even see it. You used to see it more in like quasi-Christian movies. That was sort of the narrative, like follow your heart. And I think we're starting to see that Scripture says something totally different. You know, you can read your entire Bible and you'll never find follow your heart in Scripture. You'll never be encouraged to follow your heart unless your heart is pointing you to God, to Jesus, to His will and His ways. In fact, Scripture says just the opposite. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, says to the people of God, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, that's a short verse that says an awful lot. When it says that your heart is deceitful, it doesn't just stop there, does it? It says your heart is deceitful above 
all things. Do you know what the Hebrew word for all means? It means all. It means every. It means not limiting any. It means that there is nothing in the world more deceitful to me than my own heart. Think about that for a second. And, as if that's not bad enough, he says it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, God can understand it. He created it. And Jesus came and bled and died so that we could have a heart transplant. And like Ezekiel said that we could give our heart of stone away and receive a heart of flesh that desires the things that God desires. Have you ever followed your heart and ended up in a ditch? I know I have. On big things and little things. I get all excited. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to make good choices. I'm going to track my food and keep track of my macros and, you know, not get too much sugar and not get too much of that and make sure I get enough protein. And then I go to a restaurant and I know that I should get the salad with the grilled chicken breast, but my heart notices the cheeseburger at the table next to me, and I really want a cheeseburger, and I don't want a cheeseburger with a side salad. I want a cheeseburger with fries. My heart wants that. Just follow your heart, and if you're going to get a cheeseburger and fries, you might as well get the milkshake, right? Our heart is deceitful on little things like that and on really big things. In fact, follow your heart has ended more marriages, mutilated more bodies, destroyed more souls, and ended more lives than the devil could have imagined. It's hell's most effective slogan. Stop following your heart and follow the one who created it. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who created you. You have a God who knows your heart. And he wants to give you his heart. Because he knows that that's best for you and it's best for everyone around you. And so in regards to expressive individualism, your identity is given to you by God. It is not discovered by you. Your identity is given by God, not discovered by you. Now, about 150 years ago, some philosophers, Nietzsche being perhaps chief among them, proclaimed that God is dead, that we as humans have evolved beyond the need for God or for explaining the world through God's lens. He's dead, and humans became their own God when they have followed that ideology. Darwin jumped on board, atheism, this thing has kind of gotten running. And the idea behind expressive individualism fits real well with this because expressive individualism says you are your own God. Your passions, your desires, those become your God. And the issue becomes one of authority. Whose authority are we under? Are you under the authority of your passions and your desires and your feelings? Or are you under God's authority? And this really is the central issue. And as kingdom people living in the kingdom, we have to maintain and seek to live under the authority of God on every area of our lives. Added to this, I think we can see that the sexual revolution has failed. Now, CNN, so not a Christian news source by any means, CNN reported recently on the General Social Survey, which is a survey they do every year that kind of gets um, at the bottom of what's happening in our culture socially. And in the area of sex, they found that 
Overall, happiness is at the lowest point that it's been in 50 years. The divorce rate has doubled since the 1960s, leading to millions and millions of broken homes and broken relationships. Now, I am not saying that everything was perfect in 1950 and we should go back to that. Some of you might agree with that statement. I think most of us could say, you know, there were a few things, there were maybe several things that were off, had gone too far in one direction, and the sexual revolution brought them through a healthy point all the way to another extreme. And so that's where we see ourselves now. But ironically, self-reported sexual satisfaction in the general social survey is lower than ever. Like, it's not working. People are not more satisfied with more freedom. And to illustrate this, the most sexually satisfied group demographically is Christians who hold to a biblical sexual ethic. As laid out by God in Genesis chapter 2 and affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19, one man, one woman for life. And yet the culture screams, that's not progressive enough. We've gotten beyond that. And Scripture says, no, we were never supposed to graduate beyond that. C.S. Lewis makes an important point when he says, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. You know what I think the most progressive thing that America could do at this point? is to turn around 180 degrees and go back to God's Word. Will the culture do that? I don't know. I'm praying for revival. I'm praying that America and this culture that is global now has a prodigal son moment where it comes to its senses and says, this isn't working. It's bankrupt. I'll rise and I'll go back to my father's house. That's what I'm praying for in this regard and in many other regards, that, that our culture would have a prodigal son moment and say, it hasn't worked. I'm going to go back to God. And that revival would break out. And I hope and pray that you will join me in praying for revival. Because here's the thing. Kingdom sexuality is not restrictive. It feels restrictive in play, you know, when you put it up next to the sexual revolution and what it teaches. But kingdom sexuality is not restrictive. It's protective. It's protected. God knows how dangerous sexual sin is. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians about, he knows how dangerous it is. He knows how far off course it can get us and how it can snowball into other areas. But God is not anti-sex. God's pro-sex. You know what the first command he gave them after the fall when they go out into the world and they leave the garden? He says, be fruitful and multiply. You know, y'all, I don't have to break down how the multiplication takes place, Right? God's not anti-sex. The first thing he said was, go multiply. He's for it. He's for you. He just knows how dangerous it is. And his design, despite Satan's best efforts, his design is a set of railroad tracks that will take you where you want to go and where God wants you to go. I've heard it likened to a fireplace. That You put a, build a fire in the fireplace, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It'll warm the whole house. You start taking logs out of that fireplace and set one over here in the bedroom and you set one over there and you set one outside in your front lawn, it'll burn down the whole house. It'll burn down the neighborhood around it. That fire begins, belongs in the fireplace. And there's a place that sex belongs. And if it stays there, it can be very, very fulfilling. And it's not restrictive, it's protective. And when you get off the train tracks, that's not called freedom, that's called a train wreck. But our culture keeps screaming, express yourself, express yourself, express yourself. 
But Jesus said, deny yourself. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, be a follower of mine, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, we all have a cross to bear. And what has happened a lot within the church is the people that don't struggle with sexual sin or same-sex attraction or, or any of the other hosts of ways that sexual sin plays out, we kind of elevate that one and say, that's the real sin. And these little ones that I struggle with, they're not such a big deal, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't elevate one sin above the other. And so in a culture that increasingly tells us to express ourselves, we need to follow a Savior who says, deny yourself. It's best for you and it's best for those around you that there is provision that's made for everything that the human heart longs for. We just have to find it in the correct channels. Now, the second core of the sexual revolution, after expressive individualism, the second one is the idea that the core of my identity is my sexuality. Now, this is an unprecedented notion in human history. You won't find it anywhere in Scripture, and you won't find it anywhere in human history. Up until about 40 years ago, sex was something you did. And in the last few decades, it's become who you are in the eyes of culture. We don't say that's a man with same-sex attraction. We say it's a gay man. It's an identity statement or a lesbian woman or whatever you want to fill in the blank. It's become an identity and when you look at human history as a 24-hour clock, we've only been living like this for about five minutes. <laughs> okay, so it's fairly new. But sex has gone from an activity to an identity for many people. And let me tell you clearly, you are not reduced to your attractions and your urges. They do not define you. You are a child of God, or you could be a child of God if you would enter into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who is available to everyone. And this is so important, and the second facet of the sexual revolution is so important because Satan knows that if he can control your identity, he can control your activity. Once you take on an identity, identity is powerful. That's why for the last five years, I've been standing on this stage and I have been telling you that your identity matters and that your identity is child of God. And that's why I write in my journal every single morning one of the identity statements that I'm a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights, that I'm never lost or alone because Jesus is always with me, that I'm enough and I don't have anything to prove to anyone, that I was created in and for a loving relationship with my heavenly Father who loved me and gave himself for me, that I'm free to live, love, and lead wholeheartedly and open-handedly in the power of the Spirit. Those are my identity. And Paul knew that this day was coming. And he wrote about it in his letter to Timothy. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you want to look at the screen, Paul prophesies that a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And I can tell you we're there, church. I'm not saying that 
The church has never been at that place before. There have been other seasons, not necessarily with sexual sin, but with other sins that the church has bought in, hook, line, and sinker, with sin, endorsing slavery, endorsing other things that we think, how could you say that? How could you say that that's God's will? And today, you can go online or you can go to churches in this community, and you'll find people that will tell you whatever you want to hear about the idea of sexuality. And desires have taken the place of God, and churches and pastors are saying that's okay. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell people what their itching ears want to hear. I'm going to say what God's word says. I'm accountable to him. And I would say you are too. It's not just because I'm a pastor. Peter said, you're all priests. Priests bring God to people and people to God. Are we doing that? In the way that we live our lives and the things that we say, are we doing it in a Christ-like manner? Because we have to decide who our God will be. Will it be our sexuality? Will it be materialism and the accumulation of wealth? Will it be politics? Tune in next week. We'll be hitting that one. Because the church has gotten that one wrong more than once as well. Or is it something else other than the one true God? And here's why this matters so much. Because whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. Whatever God creates, good, Satan counterfeits and corrupts and leads us astray. And so while the sexual revolution and the culture around us say that the core of your identity is your sexuality, Jesus says the core of your identity is Christ and Christ alone. That's God's desire for you, that Jesus and that being a beloved child of God, that's your identity. That's what God sees when he sees you, and that's where you build your life upon. Now, real quickly, I want to cover a couple of questions that you hear about this. Sometimes they're very sincere when they're asked, and other times they're somewhat cliche or dismissive. But the first question is, well, what about love is love, right? Or just live and let love. There's some slogans that have made their way into mainstream. Just let people do whatever they want. Why does God care who I sleep with, okay? Back off. And to even understand love is love, to think about that biblically, particularly in terms of the New Testament, there's actually four kinds of love that are talked about in the New Testament. And this is really important because God knows that we need all four. And so when he says, you know, love is love, whoever you're talking to says that, you've got to kind of ask, okay, which love are you talking about? Because in the New Testament, there's four loves. The one that we've been talking about predominantly today is eros, or sexual love. But there's also... Love called storge love. I know it looks like storge, but the way that you say it in the Greek language is storge. This is familial love. This is the love between parents and children. This is the love between brothers and sisters. This is the love that sort of has some duty attached to it, that because you are a child of your parents, you owe them some love, some honor. This is familial love. You have to love your family, even if you don't really like them, right? <laughs> and that translates into the church as well, but that's a whole other sermon, Okay. There's also philea. Philea has often been called brotherly love, but that gets confusing with storge love, right? Because storge love would be the love between two people who are actually brothers. Philea would be friendship love. That's how C.S. Lewis defined it. He wrote a whole book just on these four loves. It's a fascinating book. I would highly encourage you to read that book if you have interest in this. But philea is friendship love. It's the love between two friends. 
And then there's agape. Now, I talk a lot about agape. Agape is the divine love or the love that is unconditional and sacrificial. It's a love that sacrifices itself for another. And so when you say love is love, it matters which love you're talking about because we need all four of these loves. Marriage commitment is to be an agape love, an unconditional love. We're in covenant now. We need friendship. We need family. And in the expression of covenant marriage, we need eros. We need romantic love or sexual love. God knows this. He created us for this. But here's what has happened way too much, way too much. And it's heartbreaking that when somebody has an attraction or desire that's outside God's will, and God says no to their eros, to their desire, their family turns their back on them, says, we didn't raise you to be this way. And their friends say, I don't think we can be friends anymore. And even the church, way too much, has said, God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. And this breaks my heart. What's left? What's left for them to pursue when their family and their friends and even the church has turned their back on them? That's it. And maybe they'll find some unconditional love. But what if the church was the place where people went for unconditional love? And they developed friendships that could help them. And their families would support them. I just read a biography of a young man who struggled with same-sex attraction. And his family never stopped loving him. They kept telling him, this is not your identity. This is not who you are. God has something better for you. We love you. We're not leaving you. We're not going to turn our back on you. And then within 11 years of that, he was delivered from the same-sex attraction, and he was able to pursue a godly design for all four loves in his life. And so I hope that we can start to turn the tide on this as a church, as a body, as a church throughout the world. The second one that I want to hit is the I was born this way argument or the idea that there's a gay gene that causes people to become gay or have same-sex attractions or have some of the other things that have grown out of this. And the scientific evidence of a sexually genetic determination has gotten some clarity in the last few years. In fact, Francis Collins is the foremost geneticist. He's the director of the Human Genome Project, this massive project to map out the human genome and to determine all of the sexual determination or all of the determinations that are genetic, not just regards to sex. But he was asked about this, and he made this statement that sexual orientation is genetically influenced but not hardwired by DNA, and whatever genes are involved represent predispositions, not predeterminations. And so other predispositions, would you can have a predisposition to drug addiction or to alcoholism or to heart disease and other things that are morally neutral, right? The fact that you can have a predisposition towards same-sex attraction doesn't mean that God endorses it. God doesn't endorse heart disease. He doesn't endorse drug addiction. And yet we can have genetic predispositions to those. It doesn't tell you if it's right or wrong just because there's a genetic predisposition, he clarifies. He says, the prominent role of individual free will, choice, 
has a profound effect on us. Just like somebody who's got a genetic predisposition to heart disease can choose not to eat the things that will compound their genetic predisposition to heart disease, right? Or somebody that has a genetic predisposition to alcoholism can choose not to ever touch the stuff so that they don't get onto that slippery slope. So we have to take our feelings, we have to take our emotions, we have to take our desires, and we have to surrender them to God and to his will. Paul spoke about this as well. In Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And there are so many stories of people who have tested and approved God's will and found it to be good and pleasing and perfect. They don't get repeated by mainstream media very often, but they are out there. And you can find them if you want to find them. And so our bottom line today is that you will either find your identity in the things of this world or in the God who created you. It really is a matter of identity. It really comes down to identity. And you notice I didn't say in your sexual identity or your sexuality. I said in the things of this world because many of you don't struggle with sexuality or with same-sex attraction or even with sexual sin. That's great. But this is still a word for whatever it is that you do struggle with. What are the things of the world that you are most tempted to find your identity in? As we broaden the focus from sexuality to, to identity in general, some people find their identity in their possessions. And they have to be driving the nicest and the newest, and they have to live in the biggest and the best. And that's what makes them feel good and feel whole. Or maybe it's accomplishments, or vocation and career, or education and, and attaining more and more and more education, or family. None of these are bad things in and of themselves. But even good things become bad things when we make them ultimate things in place of God. And that's what I hope you understand today. That when you make your sexuality the main thing, it becomes a very bad thing. Even if it's within the bonds of Scripture. And you'll either find your identity in the things of this world or you will find it in the God who created you, who loves you. And I hope and pray that we will be a people who choose to align our lives with God, with his word, rather than our attractions and our desires, whether they're sexual or otherwise, and that we will set the tone for the world around us and set the example for the world around us in this regard. And if you think that you're too far gone, you're not. I meant to mention there's a couple QR codes that are going to be on the screen for a couple of other messages that are on the subject. One dives deeper into uh, gender dysphoria and the transgender movement and understanding that in the context of all of this. I would encourage you, if you don't get the QR codes, you can email me. I'll send you these links. And then a really powerful message titled, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And answering that question for somebody who struggled with same-sex attraction and was delivered from same-sex attraction. But if you think for a moment that you're too far gone or that Jesus doesn't really have any use for you, you're wrong. That's a lie of the devil as well. Jesus had tremendous love and grace for the sexually immoral. In fact, just this weekend in our banding together, it's almost funny how often this is the case. 
We read John 8, the woman caught in adultery, and how Jesus says to those around, you know, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. I think he would say the same to us today. Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And do you know who in that setting was without sin? Jesus. And the law even said, stone her. But he saw right through it. He saw that there's a woman caught in adultery, but where's the man that was caught in adultery? It takes two. It was a setup. He saw through it. And when they walked away, starting with the oldest, which I think is a significant caveat in that story, they dropped their stones, they walked away, and it was just Jesus and this woman. And he didn't say, celebrate your sin. He didn't say, be proud of it. He said, go and sin no more. He gave her a new identity. You are a beloved child of God. Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for the way that it does bring clarity and compassion to some of the most difficult subjects. And God, I pray that we could get this right as a church, as a body of believers, and increasingly as a culture, Lord, that we could get this right, that we could love the way you loved, that we could follow you, that we could deny ourselves, that we could walk with people through things, difficult things, and help them to find their identity in the God who created them. Heal our broken world, O oh Lord. Heal our broken hearts and bring us into a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.